0: This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.
1: What is actually unique about this period is more or less the complete collapse of local and community and regional news outlets, the kind of things that don't just provide information, but actually help organize a community and help a community understand itself. It's not just, again, it's not just the press provides information, but that it helps people in the community see themselves as invested in particular issues and concerns that they may not have even realized without it.
2: Welcome to Politics is Everything, the podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm Kara On Whaley.
0: I'm Matus Kudra, fourth year, government major, interning with the Center for Politics. I'm Keanu Vega, a first year, intern with the Center for Politics and a government major. My name is Clay Vaughn, I'm a fourth year, a baton and foreign affairs double major, and I'm an intern with the Center for Politics.
2: We are very honored to have with us on this episode Jamel Bowie, who is a columnist for the New York Times and a political analyst for CBS News. He is based both here in Charlottesville and in Washington, D.C. He covers history and politics, and most importantly, he's also a scholar at the Center for Politics. Thank you so much for joining us, Jamel.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: So I want to start by asking, as someone who covers history and politics, how do you situate this moment in political history?
1: My inclination is always to say that things aren't nearly as unique as they appear to be. I have to be careful with that because it's not as if I think there are one-to-one analogies to make between the present and the past, but there are recurring themes, recurring forces, uh, uh, things that there's continuity over time. And so I'm also often interested in what's what's what is part of that continuity versus what is a break from it. And so in a lot of ways, I think that our current political moment, while a break from, say, the politics of the middle of the 20th century, which would extend um, through the 1990s into the beginning of the 21st century, I think our politics, a break from that, but very similar looking to the politics of the pre-Second World War era, where there's a lot more ideological diversity in American politics from the far right to the, the left wing. Um, this is a time when there is a viable socialist party, that there is a uh, active communist movement, and then there are also big right wing political movements as well. This is a time when there is a ton of conflict over the scope of what democracy entails. Will democracy entail sort of vigorous regulation of property, for example? Uh, there's conflict over who is included in the American system. In the 1920s, we have you know, basically a, a new immigration regime that s- sharply restricts who can come into the country, but there's this conflict over this. There is mass immigration before then. There's just a lot of ha- a lot happening, reform movements, all the like. And the present moment, again, not the same. But in terms of the fractiousness, in terms of the polarization, in terms of the the way that things feel so open, I think, in American politics, where it's not quite it's hard to predict what's going to what's going to come next. I think it's very reminiscent of the, um, the pre-Second World War era and reminiscent of American politics before that as well. There is, let's um, to go too long with this answer, but there's a great book by a historian Jefferson Cowie called The Great Exception, which makes the argument that it's actually the part that we think is normal, the post-war era, that is the weird part of American politics and that we're kind of in a return to, to norm.
2: I often show that to students just in data Uh, when we look at polarization and conflict in in American history, and American political history, we can see that 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 period of, um, you know, post-World War II was, was sort of abnormal in terms of the longer scope of political history. But I also wonder if we zoom out from the domestic politics and into the global politics. One of the things I've been thinking a lot about lately is just the failure of the ideology of American exceptionalism <laughs> um, uh, in terms of, you know, we we are not so exceptional in terms of political violence and political exclusion. And yet for so long, we've, we've touted ourselves as being exceptional in that regard. And I wonder what your thoughts are on that.
1: Yeah. So I have an answer to this. It's going to be a little bit of a roundabout answer. Um, I I host a podcast with a good friend of mine, um, and it's about the political and military thrillers of the 1990s. We watch movies like Air Force One and Clear and Present Danger and et cetera, et cetera, and talk about them. And we talk about them in a specific frame, and that is the, the post-Cold War moment, sort of what is happening culturally in the United States, both as the Cold War is ending and after the Cold War ends. Because there is this triumphalism, but there's also this deep anxiety about what comes next now that we've won, now that as um, you know, Francis Fukuyama uh, argued, that history has ended. And I think that... Th- the kind of exceptionalism that you're talking about is so much a product of the Cold War, is so much a product of the way the Cold War put boundaries on American domestic politics, organized American domestic politics, and kind of created a, a context for it, right? That we are the last hope of freedom in the world, that we stand against Soviet communism and, and dictatorship and totalitarianism and so on and so forth, In that all these in that in that the the freedom of the American system the prosperity of it these are the things that make us exceptional and we are exceptional in the world um, but with the end of the Cold War and with sort of the, the the way that 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 removes the boundaries that it kind of organized and structured American politics and it kind of opens the gates for all kinds of new movements and also um, uh, demonstrates American vulnerability in new ways to terrorism, foreign and domestic, et cetera, et etc. I think that that exceptionalism becomes a much tougher sell, both for elites making it to the public, but also for how Americans feel about themselves. Um, and so I think the, the past couple of years where we've seen the rise of authoritarian movements you know at home and abroad, um, uh, the way we've seen economic dislocation kind of really affect politics at home and abroad, I think all these things are, are reinforcing an idea that really kind of has taken steam in the years since the Cold War, which is that we are not actually, like, A, history didn't end. And, and I know that's not what Fukuyama like literally meant, but, you know, for the sake of the rhetoric here, history didn't end. And um, we are not immune to the problems that face uh, other countries. And there's actually things we can learn from those experiences in terms of understanding what is happening here.
0: We're approaching the 60th anniversary of the 24th Amendment to the US Constitution, which abolished the poll tax in federal elections. Uh, What are the barriers to voting and political power that persist for minority and marginalized groups? And what can be done to address those barriers?
1: To, 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 to reframe your question a little bit, I'd say that the, the bar- there are barriers that exist to voting that, are, that affect most Americans. They may most acutely affect more marginalized Americans, but I think they're, they're, it's generally true for everyone. Um, our system of voter registration, for example, in which you have to proactively go to a registrar in most states and say, I want to vote, is a barrier. Um, are in many state systems of of strict voter identification where you have to have certain state-issued IDs. um, That itself is a barrier. There are a lot of Americans who, for a variety of reasons, do not have those ideas or may not even really need them. Um, This is a little more, this is more my sort of like own uh, personal hobby horse. But I think that not just felon disenfranchisement, which still exists in the country, but the fact that convicts themselves are disenfranchised while serving in prison um, should be thought of as a meaningful barrier to, to voting, especially since in many states uh, reapportionment, it's done with the with prisoners as part of a district's total. Right. And so if there's a, you know, the, the county jail here, well, I mean, all those people are in the county. If we live in a place where there is a state jail, um, the inmates at that jail would be counted for population purposes and how much representation we get, even if those people cannot vote. And that, that just strikes me as like basically wrong, that either you don't count them and they can't vote, makes sense, or you count them and they can. Um, but I think alleviating uh, barriers to voting um, is mainly just a matter of kind of like using data and processes we already have in government and kind of just making these things automatic. Automatic voter registration, um, uh, automatic reenfranchisement enfranchisement for former felons, um, moves to sort of like make voting an easier thing to do overall. We had a big experiment with mail-in balloting in 2020 and for all the conspiracy theories that came out of that, like the the conclusion was that it was pretty smooth and pretty straightforward and was very effective. So mail-in balloting, um, uh, with ample opportunities for returning ballots, um, you know, long voting periods, national voting holidays, that kind of thing, I think um, I think would work. The last point I'll make. Um, so you, you preface your question by noting that the Twenty Fourth Amendment was passed sixty years ago, and one of my little obsessions is how weird it's been in American politics that we haven't had a constitutional amendment basically in over half a century, um, which is very unusual. Like. We used to be not churning on amendments, but at a pretty regular interval, the United States would amend its constitution um, to address current conditions. And I have this mostly unsubstantiated theory that so much of the stasis in the American system—I mean, there, there are lots of things you can point to um, in terms of stasis and dysfunction, polarization, partisanship, blah, blah, blah—but it, it might just be as simple as our system has more or less been unchanged— for, again, over half a century. And there's been nothing really to sort of like kick it to reorganize things a bit. Um, and so I think that given that most Americans take voting as a basic right, given that we're always, you know, in many places looking for ways to expand it, I think it would be worthwhile to have a constitutional amendment it's simply saying that voting is a right. right? Voting is a right of citizenship, because you don't have that, 15th Amendment implies it, 14th Amendment implies it, um, various things imply it, and so out of these implications, you can kind of say, there's a right to vote. But I think we would do well just to say, constitutionally, Americans have a right to vote, and this puts then the onus on governments to sort of facilitate that right, rather than look for ways around um, honoring it.
2: And at least to have a positive right, because the 14th and 15th Amendment, there's no positive right. It's just... (laughs) You can't discriminate.
1: Right, right, exactly. (laughs) There's been a lot of discussion about politicians using populist and racially divisive
0: rhetoric designed to other minoritized groups, and it hasn't just been since the
1: election of Donald Trump. What role do you think that kind of derogatory, blame-seeking, us-versus-them rhetoric plays in maintaining racial resentment in America? It's obviously the case that there are many people in the country that hold Varieties of racial prejudice and racial resentment just as sort of like, you know, part of their psychological makeup. That's just true. Um, But one thing that is sort of just clear from political science is that just because you have a belief doesn't mean it's necessarily politically salient. You can believe something. This is a good, a really good non-racial example of this is how abortion politics focus uh, uh, work in the African-American community. African-Americans tend to be more religiously observant than the population at large, tend to describe themselves as moderate conservative, and do tend to have more moderate and conservative social views on abortion, on same-sex marriage, whatever. But... Politicians who have tried to appeal to black voters on the basis of socially conservative views about abortion, for example, have often found themselves, you know, not getting what they want, not winning the votes. And one explanation for that is that while many black Americans hold these views, they're not especially salient for their voting. What's salient are other concerns, concerns about racial equality, concerns about anti-discrimination, concerns about maintaining group cohesion by supporting the party that... The the communities traditionally supported all these things count for so much more, um, and so even if you can say, hey, listen, you know, I'm against abortion, you're against abortion, you should vote for me, abortion doesn't rise to the level of a voting issue for most Black Americans, and there are times, um, quite recently, when racial resentment wasn't the most salient thing for a lot of voters. Um, uh, my favorite story from the two thousand Eight election and you guys are all undergrads and stuff, so now I, I feel like so old because mm-hmm. I was an undergrad during the 08 election. Um, uh, so it's like, it's anyway, one of my favorite stories from that election is of a canvasser for Obama in like Ohio or something or Pennsylvania, um, and the Pennsylvania part of Pennsylvania, uh, uh, you know, knocking on doors and coming to this home, and it's this older, you know, white lady. And uh, the canvasser's like, so are, are, who are you gonna support? And um, she says, I'm gonna vote for the, you know, insert racial slur. And it's so funny to me, right? Because it's like, she's gonna vote for Obama, but she's you know referring to him as a really ugly racial slur. And to me, that is evidence that for that vote, and for a lot of voters in that election, they may have held racially prejudiced views, but they just weren't salient in that moment. They just didn't matter politically in that moment. I think it is true that politicians, depending on what they choose to emphasize, can make those things salient. I think that's what happened in 2016 um, uh, with Donald Trump, made people's views about race and identity salient. And Hillary Clinton, by fighting a campaign on those grounds, also made them salient. Both campaigns made them salient for people and essentially pushed Americans to choose. If you're gonna vote on this, where do you stand? And enough stood with Trump to, to win him the election. Um, this is all to say that it's, you know, politicians not indulging this stuff isn't going to make it go away, but there is real value in kind of just making it less salient for political um, combat, right? It's less destructive. Politics becomes much less destructive in terms of what it can do to our society if we're not like raising the salience of this stuff in a really um, intense way. So that's all to say that I agree with the premise of your question. I think it's right. Um, And I think you can very clearly see it happening uh, in recent U.S. politics. Um, And again, this is not to say that somehow racial prejudice go away, but it's not set in stone that just because people feel a certain way about certain groups of people, that that's going to fundamentally shape their politics. You have to... um, Political elites have a role to play in determining whether or not politics is going to happen on that basis.
0: You've stated in one of your opinion pieces that the best way to neutralize DeSantis as a political force is to spend less time on cultural conflict and more time making the clear case that if given the chance, he would slash what's left of the safety net and use the proceeds to help the rich stay rich. Do you believe that that still
1: holds true today or has his momentum surpassed concerns regarding social security? Um, so I don't think he has all that much momentum. I just actually wrote about this and something I have to file uh, later today. Uh, I don't think he has that much momentum, but I do think it's still true. And this kind of gets to the salience point, right? Like, if you're going if, if if you if you decide you're gonna fight an election against anyone on the basis of like, what do you think about gender affirming care for young people? You're gonna run the risk of people who might otherwise agree with you on lots of other stuff saying, "Well, I'm not so sure about that. It makes me uncomfortable. Maybe I'm gonna go for the person who's like, you know, let's let's put a clamp down on it." Um, and I think I kind of think that's what uh, Ron DeSantis, and obviously now I'm speaking from my perspective of being, you know, a, a lefty. Um, I think that's what Ron DeSantis would prefer that a campaign against them is fought on these cultural grounds. So I feel it's important to say that it's not that these cultural things are not important and it's not that they don't have real concrete consequences for people. But when you're talking about them in terms of politics and building political coalitions, you have to be careful about how you address them, addressing them as addressing it as a straightforward conflict about whether this thing should be allowed might divide the coalition you're trying to build because the coalition you're trying to build it's going to include lots of people of different views on like hot button uh social issues uh and you don't want to divide them and on the flip side uh, your, your republican candidate your republican opponent they're going to be assembling a coalition of people for whom a non-trivial number have not conservative views on the role of government and the social safety net and so the question is here is like, how do you want to divide the electorate? Do you want to divide it along the cultural dimension, which can cut into your own coalition? Or do you want to divide it along dimensions of you know, political economy, the role of the government, the role of the state? And I think that is a much more fruitful ground for Democrats, liberals, whomever um, to fight an election. And I don't necessarily think it means you have to like abandon vulnerable people to the winds. I think you can make claims in their defense um, by framing it in this context, saying, listen, we have to treat people with dignity. We have to treat people decently. We have to make sure people are safe and can get the health care that they need. And uh, my opponent is against that, and he's against that for reasons that have more to do with dividing you than any kind of you know, particular interest in the issue itself. You can address it, and you move on. I think that's perfectly feasible and It's probably the right way to go about these things, because again, we kind of just witness what it, what happens when you are really fighting specifically on the hot button cultural conflict. Um, uh, it doesn't necessarily work out. And that, just a real quick example of this, I think you can think of the whole like election, uh, uh, what's it, stop the steal stuff as like the, the the flip side of this, right? Like all these candidates are like running on stop the steal, and. A bunch of voters who might otherwise agree with them on the policy issue was is like, "Well, this is insane, and I don't want to. I don't want my vote to affirm some maniac who thinks Trump actually won the election. So I'm going to vote for the Democrat." And I think you can actually see this in like the in the final results that you had Republicans voting for Democratic candidates, not necessarily because they say wanted you know a new child uh, tax credit program, but because they just didn't want to be associated with um you know stop the steal. So you mentioned Stop the Steal, and in the past few years
0: we have seen a dangerous flood of misinformation and fake news. Now Fox media is amongst those spreading lies and misinformation. And I don't think it's hyper hyperbole to say that this is
1: dangerous. How do you see the future of American news and also the public trust in American news? I feel like I have a somewhat like heterodox opinion on this for being a journalist. A lot of journalists when they think about this stuff are like, yeah, Fake news, disinformation, misinformation, all this is horrible and truly harming democracy. And my view is like, is it really though? Um, Because, and I say this because, although the transmission of it is different in the 21st century, although, kind of maybe you could say the scope of it is a little different, it is also true that there's never been a point in American history where a lot of Americans have not been imbibing insane things, right? That's just sort of like, a standard thing happening in American politics and have been since the very beginning, um, uh, starting during the Revolutionary War and continuing forward. There's always been misinformation and disinformation, all these things in American politics. They've always been a part of how Americans engage with the political world. It's never been the case that most Americans have sort of like an objective view of what's happening in the world and then make their political decisions based off of that. That is a fantasy. Um, so if it's not... From my from my perspective, if it's not the disinformation or the fake news or whatever, like what's happening? And my own view is that what is actually unique about this period is more or less the complete collapse of local and community and regional news outlets—the kind of things that don't just provide information but actually help organize a community and help a community understand itself. I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago. Um, I spoke about it at a thing. And the, the insight I, I, I got was from uh, Tocqueville from Democracy in America, kind of like you, who throughout the book sort of makes note of the role of the press in American society. And one observation he makes is that it's not just, again, it's not just the press provides information, but that it helps people in the community see themselves as invested in particular issues and concerns that they may not have even realized without it. And that in doing that, it actually helps form publics. And it does this at a very local level. It does this, you know, at each successive level. You can think of that process of public formation and then that process of people acting as a public as sort of practice for democratic life. It's like you're doing everyday democracy, you're doing these things on a regular basis and it translates to other levels of politics and it shapes how you think about politics. Maybe instead of thinking of politics as a contest between two sides, you think of politics as like primarily a thing about getting things done. Um, I think the collapse of local and regional news, the collapse of the publics that formed around them, of the regular participation in local government, and you can see this, you know, people who study this will point out that with the collapse of local news over the last couple of decades, there has been a noted change in how people participate politically. Um, and I think that that has like much more to do with the problems we're facing in this regard, in part because... There's less of a concrete connection to what politics does. Politics is for a lot of people kind of like sports. And speaking as a big politics nerd, that can be fun sometimes. But at the end of the day, politics is actually about like collectively deciding how we're going to solve problems and how we're going to govern ourselves. And as that gets divorced from, um, from how people actually experience politics, I think can have like really weird and perverse effects, which we're seeing
0: now. So Marjorie Taylor Greene says it's time for Americans to consider a national divorce. Do fantasies like these have the potential to motivate conservative voters more than they scare away moderates? And what is the coded language in these kinds of calls for separation?
1: Maybe it'll motivate conservative voters. I mean, whatever with political rhetoric, there's always like, it always takes two to tango. And so if someone responds to it by saying that's really stupid, I'm not sure if it's going to motivate people, uh, but it might. I certainly think it'll scare away moderates. Um, I don't know if there's any coded language. I mean, okay. I'm certain that you could, it, it's interesting. Uh, MTG merger, Taylor green is from a, a suburb of Georgia. that's That's been trying to like divorce itself from the Atlanta metro area. And there's obviously a lot of like, a lot of ugly subtext behind that. Um, and so I think for some people, they're going to conceive of that in that way. But I think for the most part, the people who are talking about national divorce, just imagine some world in which they can kind of like live their lives without having to like experience a lib, um, a liberal. And I think that's just very silly. I, I, I'm i glad you used the word fantasy because I think it's a fantasy. Um, the fact of the matter is I've mentioned... Let me rewind. I mentioned some of my like theories and suppositions one of them for which I'm not sure there's any empirical basis but I believe it nonetheless is that the way we map politics actually has like a kind of underrated influence on in people think about it so every 4 years you have these election maps that are red and blue red and blue and it's like well that state's it's red and that state's blue Uh, Even for uh, uh, congressional elections, okay, well, these counties are red and these counties are blue, and it creates the impression of uniformity and and sort of partisan hegemony in various places. But as many people pointed out, if you do, like, you know, population-style maps, which just show how people actually voted and represent those votes as dots and shades— which you qu- quickly see that there's literally no place in the country that is uniformly red or uniformly blue. Charlottesville has, you know, I've been around here long enough that you know people refer to it as the People's Republic of Charlottesville, right? Sort of like this like blue left wing enclave in the middle of red, and that might be true, but something like thirty five percent, seven thirty percent of Charlottesvilleians regularly vote for Republican candidates, right? If you go out into Nelson County. 30%, 35% of voters there regularly vote for Democrats. Like, in, in, there are a handful of places in the country where you're going to be like 90% red, 90% blue, but most places, there's a lot of people voting from both sides. And so the idea that you could somehow sort of like divorce in a meaningful way is, it's silly. It's very dumb to put it simply. It's like, it's, It's a fantasy it's a and and i'll say what i'll say real quickly what it's a fantasy of it's a fantasy of a world where there is no more political conflict where everything's been settled one of the fantasies that many americans have not just people who want a national divorce but i think people who are sort of like why can't we be more centrist more bipartisan and all these things is a fantasy of maybe we can find some configuration where political conflict just isn't as much of a thing anymore And the fact of the matter is, is that as long as the United States exists, as long as it's this big, diverse, uh, 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 pluralistic country, we're going to have politics. We're going to have a lot of political conflict and we just have to find ways to accommodate it and live with it and make sure it doesn't get too destructive. But the idea that we'll ever come to a place where everyone can just like shake hands and agree, you know, without any um, serious conflict is is it's a fantasy. And so I thought it was appropriate to
0: end the last question by simply asking you, what would you do to improve politics and
1: also to strengthen democracy? Well, what I did, so I'm kind of like, I have like fiat power. I can just like wave a magic wand. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I didn't used to think this. I used to be very much of a, of a person who's like, yeah, it doesn't really matter how party systems organize. Like the main difference between a two-party system and a multi-party system is like where you're, where are the coalitions being organized before the election or after the election? But I've actually come to be persuaded um, uh, in a funny way by like reading a lot of James Madison <laughs> that uh, our two-party system um, creates a lot of perverse incentives. Chief among them, or it creates a lot of perverse dynamics, and chief among them is the idea that you can somehow just like win a perpetual majority, that, that this is a thing that's possible. And so if you if you believe that you can do it, then whatever incentive exists for, like, compromise, for taking half a loaf, from not turning political combat up, like, turning the heat up to 11 and seeing where that goes, um, whatever incentive exists not to do that kind of disappears if you believe that, hey, maybe this is the election that we can just, like, win all the marbles. Um, And also just as we're seeing now, when there are only two parties, things can very easily just get – Polarized across multiple dimensions on a single line, um, which also makes the stakes of each election seem existential. Uh, and so maybe, you know, one of the things we could do, at least to sort of re- reduce that dynamic, is find ways to shift to a multi party system for the simple reason that if there are multiple parties, neither one ever having a chance. attain a majority operating in the political system then that introduces a certain amount of uncertainty you don't know any given election who knows who's going to actually be able to uh, uh, have the balance of power and that at the very least may incentivize everyone to sort of like lower the temperature a bit not that the conflict's going to go away but lower the temperature and also look for sort of like novel configurations of coalitions and such to, to get things done. I mentioned Madison because sort of like this is the Madisonian insight about factions, right? That like the, the whole point of the extended republic is that no one faction can become big enough to kind of dominate all the others. And I think that insight probably applies to party politics as well. Um, and we're kind of at a point where the country might do well to find ways to incentivize um, that creation the multiple parties. Now, to do that, there's a lot of institutional changes you have to make. You have to make the House probably considerably larger than it is. You have to do something about the Electoral College, which is really something that kind of like structures the 2 party system in an important way. You did have to move to multiple member districts. You have to do a lot of stuff. Um, some form of approval voting, whether it's instant runoff or whatever. Uh, but it's something to think about.
2: Daniel no, Bowie, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong-Whaley. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris phase You can learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also engage with us on Twitter at center number four politics. Until next time,